to the book of Psalms. I'll be reading Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Blessed is the reading of God's Holy Spirit inspired word through his prophet David. Oh Father, let these words penetrate with the meaning that's there for each of our lives in our time, in our lives, in this season now. Oh, may we cry out, not only to our own souls, but to others, that in you we take refuge. We shall behold your face. We thank you that we can do this because by your Son you purchased us forever. Amen and amen. So, as a Christian, as an American Christian, someone who was raised in this country for, for decades in the most prosperous free society in human history. Have you recently felt struck with a thought that it's all crumbling beneath your feet? If so, then this psalm is for you. That seems to be the scenario of David's friends who were speaking to him about stability crumbling. Literally in the Hebrew, it's being, the foundations are being thrown down. Verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Might as well run and hide and flee, David. In the psalm itself, it refers to a time of all protections, the securities of God's people, 
stability and the social fabric is just in disarray. Things are not the way they were just a short time ago. Just get on an airplane, jam-packed with people, and we all have cloths over our noses and our mouths and our chins as if it's going to save us from death. And then you, you can take it off and you can eat your cookie and drink your coffee while you're sitting 14 inches away from strangers on either side. It wasn't this way a very short time ago. School systems are eating away at the moral fabric of the next generations. Racism is taught as the moral high ground. The abandonment of science and truth is the air that people are breathing in our society as they deny that human beings are born either male or female. Governments at the threat of destroying your life and your livelihood force people to inject medicines into their veins that they don't want or don't think that they need. They're systematically destroying the dollar. Inflation is skyrocketing. People's life savings are being diminished before their eyes. The evil of many prosecutors financed by billionaire leftists is on display, like in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse a few weeks back. In a number of cities, governments are allowing thugs and criminals to walk into stores and to steal just a little bit under $1,000 without any real penalty whatsoever until those areas look like third world countries. I can go on. Notice here, though, David's outlook on life. Notice in the midst of that, in the midst of his own circumstances where the foundations are crumbling, what he teaches us. The first line in verse 1. Yahweh, in him I take refuge. That's his go-to in the midst of the earthquakes of life. And then he goes on to put his worldview, to put his position in the larger context here. In Yahweh, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird? To your mountain. For behold, David, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Flee. Now, look at it. The wicked there, that term is in the plural. In Hebrew... So the person speaking, or persons speaking, 
to David, they distinguish themselves from the wicked. David, there's the wicked over there. You're not. We're not. And they're saying, David, run away. Because the wicked bend the bow to kill you. So in the context, they must be David's friends. But those are also the kinds of words that David or we allow to ruminate in our own hearts during circumstances. Run. Flee. David, the foundations are destroyed. Everything is falling apart. You better hide. If fear were personified, that's the counsel that it gives. This is his advice to the righteous. It kind of makes sense. They're going to kill me. Flee. But it's in conflict. Their advice is in conflict with the first line in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge in him, not into some worldly mountain of refuge. And that's the tension that David feels when therefore he says, How can you say fear? And be driven by that fear. Flee like a bird to the mountain. So think about the context. This is advice coming from people who care about David. Who care about you. It's not coming from an enemy. It's coming from those who have good motives, who are concerned from someone who wants the best for you, the best for David. They cared about King David's safety. And sometimes, therefore, there's a very fine line between wisdom and fear that comes from a heart of unbelief that drive our decisions in life. Makes it messy. Which one is it? It could be about a new job. Or a move. Or kids schooling. Or church change. Or financial decisions. David gets his advice here from people who care about him. And yet the context shows that their advice here is foundationally against faith. It's pious, it's sincere, it's concerned, and therefore it's very plausible advice. And that's the difficulty for all of us as believers. How do we discern whether that advice, whether that move is coming from godly wisdom or from a lack of faith. 
and thus fear. For instance, let me, in other words, you take our psalm. How do you distinguish this from Matthew 10, 23? When Jesus said to his disciples, when they persecute you, flee to the next city. Here, in the context, David rejects their advice. Flee like a bird to your mountain because they're after you. So sometimes well-intentioned Christian advice is born out of fear. But how do you know when we should run or when we should flee to the next city? That's other than to start here, this is why Bible saturation and prayer and means both real communion by the Holy Spirit with God is desperately needed for all Christians at all times, and especially in times of crises. Like if you remember a few months back, or a year back in Philippians 1, Paul writes this to them. It's what we always need. It is my prayer that your love may grow more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is best, what's excellent, what's good advice or fear-driven advice. And thus you're making right choices so that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's what we need. We live in a world right now, we're living through this moment, the rise of a new religion called safetyism. Better safe. Sorry. Don't go to church for a year and a half. Stay safe. If there's the possibility that when children contract the COVID 19 virus, that, 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 99.998% chance that nothing harmful will come to them, well, then let's just pull them out of school. Let's mask them up. Let, let's push and campaign to start to inject them with an experimental vaccine that lasts only four to six weeks. That's relevant to this text because part of the subtle advice that David gets from his friends assumes that safety is all important. And that's what makes safety a false god when it becomes the everything. So we ask questions. Am I doing that when I when if I take safety as preeminent am I doing that when I refuse to let my children ever out of my sight 
Am I doing that when I don't let them play down the street with friends without me helicoptering over them? Or I will never let them play on a jungle gym. They might get hurt. Am I doing that when I move to another city for the security of much more money without ever considering first and foremost, is there a Bible-saturated church community there? We're in constant need to discern between godly choices, choices of wisdom from those that come from unbelief. Fear. First and foremost, we are not to flee out of fear, but to run to God in prayer. In the Lord I take refuge. And then David goes on to reject this well-meaning, fear-mongering counsel in verses 4 to 7. Feel the flow. In verse 2, the counsel of these friends comes and says, Behold, David, look! The, the wicked bend the bow. They, they've got the trigger of the gun cocked on you, David. But he responds this way. Beginning in verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Now you stop for a minute. I mean, at first glance you say, how is... How's that helpful? I've got problems right here, right now, and God's far off in heaven. But that would be to misread it. Because notice the language. Notice his imagery. That's his point. There's a throne of authority. He's got eyes. He's got eyelids. He's saying the opposite of what you might think. He is saying Yahweh is not removed from your circumstances. But He rules from His throne over all of them. His dominion implies activity. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The psalm is pointing believers to see the character of God. He is just. And His judgments are based on His careful observations and testing and examination of all things. And verse 5 goes on. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates 
the wicked, and the one who loves violence. He hates. And so he will cause it to rain coals of fire on the wicked. That's verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur, the scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. But he doesn't just hate. He loves. Verse 7. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall see his face. Here's the point. God is not some undefinable idea of a higher cosmic power. God is not some mushy religious idea in order to comfort us when loved ones die. He's not some fable that helps us in the human experience escape the realities and the roughness of life. He has a nature, an essence, a consciousness. He has a particular character. He is holy. He is the plumb bob and the measurement of what is good and what is bad and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And he hates evil. He loves the good. That's why when he came in that first advent and walked this earth, Jesus had no use for the distortion of God that his contemporary religious Jews were putting forth. And challenged it and attacked it. Now, I think he would also be happy to dispense with the God that is put forward in many American evangelical churches today. The relativistic God the amoral God, the non-judging God, the sentimental deity that men conjure up, but they don't get it from the Bible. The Lord's righteous character explains His just judgment. Everywhere in the Bible, and in this psalm, verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. That's why verses 5 and 6, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be their portion portion of their cup. 
It's God's justice that is the comfort, the hope of his saints. Like David. Or any of us who believe in Jesus. Because his saints are those whose guilt of their own wickedness has been borne by Jesus himself. The penalty suffered and thus died. And for your justification, God raised him from the dead. For all of those whom he has come to get, If the righteous are to be delivered in the end time and in portion throughout the centuries, it often means the wicked must be judged. And that'll happen only if God is actively just. But during this present evil age, until the second return of Christ, we only taste portions of that. Bits and pieces. But in the consummation, at the second coming of Christ, on that day, as the Apostle Paul preached to the Athenians, this way, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. And so in our journey... During this mortal life, God does bring deliverances to His people. He brings reprieve, and often through bringing judgment, through killing evildoers, through taking them out of the way. That's why David puts his eyes upon the Lord. You can either, all of us now in our day, allow the daily news to imbibe too much and you don't want to imbibe too little. You want to know what's going on in your world. But we can imbibe too much of the daily news so that it overwhelms us or according to the psalm to focus on the wicked that that David's friends, well-meaning, are trying to get him to focus on and act. Or we can place the majority of our focus on the Lord, on the truth, on the gospel. His eyes see. His eyelids are moving. He has all authority, all power to act. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. 
his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. So when the foundations of, of freedom, justice feel like they're crumbling beneath you, when tragedy strikes, when society beckons you to just live in fear, allow verse 4 to grip you. Say, Yahweh, the Lord Jesus is in his holy temple and everything will be okay. Which leads to the final line of the psalm. The upright shall see. Behold his face. Now, Derek Kinder, in his commentary on the Psalms, summarizes Psalm 11, the beginning and the end, I think perfectly, when he says, quote, If the first line of the Psalm showed where the believer's safety lies, the last line, shows where his heart should be. God as refuge may be sought for motives that are too self-regarding, but to behold his face is a goal in which only love has any interest. End quote. In other words, he's saying... It's one thing to seek safety. Oh God, I don't like my circumstance now. It hurts. It's painful. Please. Okay, good. Now we're safe again and go on your way. It's another thing for true saints who are made alive by the Holy Spirit of God Himself in them for them to care about fellowship. With God. To behold His beauty. To get glimpses of Him high and lifted up. Seated in the temple. And it's that, that full and that final consummation of beholding His face. That brings David strength. Brings him assurance. Because for him and for us, it is experienced only in part during this time. This time of testing. Verse 5 The Lord tests the righteous. You're testing me, my friends. Trying to get me to react in unbelief that's producing fear. You're testing me and you're being used 
On this occasion, David says no. We do behold him right now. We do see. That's what it is to be a Christian. The Lord has turned a light on in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we don't yet fully see Him. We still await. We await our resurrection. The New Testament says the same thing, and it says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 8-9. Oh, dear Christian, though you have not seen Him, the Lord Jesus, Yahweh manifested in the flesh, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of that faith, the salvation of your soul. And that's true of every one of you in this room. At least the first part. May the second part be true of you. But the first part is, none of you have seen the Lord Jesus. But those of us who are in Him, we love Him. Because we know Him. He, well, actually knows us. And thus He has shown the knowledge of Himself through the Gospel, but not alone, by the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And that is why any of us, during our journey down here, by that Holy Spirit, in our fears and in our tears, when no one's looking, we cry out, Abba, Father, Father. And remember this, as you still have more arrows to dodge, bows are pulled back upon you. Know this, we will see Him. But until that day, know this, you love Him. Because he first loved you. And you know that he loved you because you love him. He came and he got you because he bought you for himself.
But until that day, know that Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4 is coming. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. So faith, and walking in faith, that faith is, is absorbed in the truth of the gospel. The whole gospel, the full gospel, all the time. Put your life and your, and your fears and your, your pain and, and your questionings and your tragedies and why do I even exist in such a world at times. It puts it into its full-blown context which brings an inexpressible joy. And that's what causes us to filter out the counsels of well-meaning fear-mongers. To say with David, how can you say to my soul, flee, fear. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright. It's all whom Jesus brought to himself or will bring to himself. They shall behold his face. And we shall sing to him whom we do not see. Oh, Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for such deliverance. We thank you for such joy. We thank you for the Advent season. We thank you for the incarnation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your humility, which was to glorify your Father by saving wretched sinners like us. Be glorified, O oh Lord. Amen.